Hello and welcome once again to the Dice Are Screaming podcast. I'm Randy. I'm Mike. And welcome once again to the two-headed literary Eden of gaming podcasts. The <laughs> Dice Are Screaming and the Zeitgeist that is both of us together. <laughs> oh man, I only wish we were all of that. <laughs> oh? Yeah, we're the plucky little gaming podcast that uh, wants to roll like a 20-sider, but always winds up landing like a die four. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> well, hey, folks, we got a heck of a show for you planned. Today we're talking about Battletech. Yep, that big old game of Stompy Mechs. And hey, uh, before we get into it, we have a couple things we're going to set aside here. Uh, first of all, we had a some great calls and reactions to our Rutger Hauer Power Hour back uh, a couple weeks ago, and people really enjoyed it, and Jason and Joe called in, so thank you guys for calling in. We're going to feature you next week because we need some space to operate, so we're just going to get right into it and go ahead with uh, telling of the future, so Mike, take it away. Yes, uh, the Gelloscopper strikes again, uh, divining the future through the power of laughter. I'm going to need a laugh. Give Give it to me. (laughs) <laughs> Ooh, sinister laugh. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? Uh, slightly appropriate, too, since next week, the Gelloscopper has now divined that we're talking Pathfinders War the Crown. Oh, yeah. Okay, that, it's it's pretty epic in scope, but I think we can handle it and still do call-ins. Uh, tragically, this week, we're going to need every minute we've got to cover Battletech. Yeah, so sorry, Joe and Jason. Thank you for your point outs and opinions. And I missed your voices so much. <laughs> and also uh, to James Brown. Not, not that James Brown. I feel good. No, not even sir. For telling us about that. We didn't like the... We didn't give any love for uh, surviving the game, which, oh. you know, that's the thing about Rutger Hauer is that everybody's got a a, a moment that it re- he really spoke to you as a, an actor or a film that got a hold of you. And, you know, maybe we'll cover that briefly when we talk about the calls, that which ones touched us. And, yeah, thanks a lot for sharing for that. So we really enjoyed that. Yeah, I'm so glad people enjoyed that episode and that it drew reactions because, I mean, we're pretty... We're moderately serious Rutger Hauer fans here, which was thus the dedicated episode. So it's just, it always tickles to realize that, like, yeah, this, it strikes a chord in the gamer heart. This guy's like wired into all the stuff we love collectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it's tangentially sometimes, and sometimes it, it lurks a little closer, like Blade Runner. I mean, oh, yeah. That how many solos have I? I have been created in the image of Roy Batty. <laughs> it looks like that one guy from Blade Runner. You know, with the big coat. You mean Rutger Hauer? Yeah, what was that character's name? Roy Batty. Yeah, I, I can blame people. I can't blame people for missing the name, but I mean, you just say you look like Rutger Hauer in Blade Runner. I got you. Okay, yeah, we got it. <laughs> All right. So, yeah, uh,. So is that our foretelling for Pathfinder? It'll be good that to talk about that. That is our foretelling. Uh, Pathfinder's War of the Crown is on deck for next week. So, yeah. All right. Well, let's get into it then. Uh, no more preamble. We're talking about Battletech today. And this is a big topic because, man, it's one of the things that lays usually behind the curtains in gaming. I mean, everybody knows about Forgotten Realms. Uh, we've talked a lot about Glorantha and, of course, Pathfinder. But here's a game that's maybe not as old as, uh, say, Traveler, but 
it has a kind of a similar scope in a space opera setting that is ostensibly about two giant robots beating the snail snot out of each other. Now, in this episode, uh, Randy's going to do a lot of the micro-examination, and I'm going to be talking a lot on the macro side of the scale, the uh, kind of cultural impact, zeitgeist stuff, uh, while he hammers home the more specific details and setting-related material. Because while I have played and been a participant, uh, I have never actually owned a single book, you know? I've never owned Battletech as as a game. I showed up at everybody else's events, and like they would hand me a miniature, drop it on the map, and then we would just like, yeah, we'd, we'd help you create a pilot. And... So yeah, you let's know. start out with Battletech. Um, there's some similarities to old school gaming, I guess we want to go through. And one of those things I will start with is Dawn Patrol. There was a little game called Dawn Patrol where you kind of created a pilot and you ran them through various missions, hoping that they would survive and through the bloody skies of 1916. Yeah, and this was not pure pen and paper fantasy. Uh, these were games that all had a miniature component. Uh, they all had like a, a map setting, uh, I believe, in the earliest days. Uh, it was not hexagonal maps uh, like in the earliest incarnations weren't they just standard graph i think they were still hexagonal oh yeah. okay but yeah, uh, old avalon hill and stuff like that i think i think dawn patrol i haven't looked at my copy in a while it's over at ed's house but I, i'll uh, resurrect it there but you know these the emerged out of uh gamers who made use of miniatures and man that puts battletech in that vaunted list of games that like really connects to the original heritage of gaming itself. Right, and we're gonna talk about Fossa, we're gonna talk about the legal battles. There's a lot of stuff to cover. So first, we're gonna talk about Fossa itself. Now, Fossa was a little company that used to make some traveler supplements and adventures. Yeah, they were literally, like, I, I don't wanna use the term writing on other people's coattails, no. but they were creatives who were participants in other people's core concepts and that was great okay they were doing just fine like that but they tapped into something that was already happening that was just waiting for somebody to transform it into tabletop uh, the concept of the giant bot fight okay first yeah they had on a nerd level i'm just gonna say yeah the first how can you say no to that just, that, that first <sighs> blush you know two giant robots shooting each other from across the battlefield. Okay, that sounds great, but Novasa came out with a little game called Grav Ball, and it did pretty well. If you remember Grav Ball? Well, you uh, <laughs> remember a lot of the adverts from Early Dragon Magazine, and they found that there was a good way to get themselves promoted and out there. So, about that time, uh, why don't you go ahead and talk about the uh, what was happening overseas in the uh, late uh, 70s, or late 60s, early 70s. Yeah, uh, the manga and anime communities uh the concept of the giant fighting bot the mecha uh that, like a suit of armor that you wore yeah a, a super gigantic suit of armor that you wore that like you then fought in that crept its way into the cultural zeitgeist and there was this fantastic link uh circa the 1980s where when I talk about the intersectionality of gaming culture, uh, when you meet another gamer, 
they've got a list of really esoteric weird stuff that they have researched and looked into and are a fan of. And then you have your list and then you talk about the things that you both like that seems to be not very popular to the rest of the world. And it was sort of an in-crowd joke. You know, you a lot of people wouldn't get the references. But very slowly, this stuff had also jumped the waters and made it to the United States and had its fan base uh, for these anime yeah. and manga that had presented the giant fighting robot. And the guys at FASA were wired into this notion. And they had the brilliance to say, hey, why don't we graph this out? You know, like, let's let's figure out what the mechanics of movement and the, like, the phases of turns are. How do we transform this from high-concept sci-fi uh, you know, just yeah. What kind of weapons do they use? Let's codify. Like, there's shooty things, and there's <laughs> missiles, and there's lasers, of course, railgun fist. <laughs> uh, you know, what have you? And they managed to get it down onto pen and yeah. paper, and, and they bless them for doing it. They use some good stuff, which uh, we'd later be known as Robotech, but at first it was Super Dimension. Fortress Macross. That was the early 80s. And then going back into the 70s, you got Bang of the Sun, Dogram, and Crusher Joe. Now, out of those, they salvaged almost every design that they would start the game with, which was about 12 mechs. Now, we want to put a pin in this because it's going to be important later. Uh, these mechs would kind of be the iconics, the big boys. They would become the Marauder, the Warhammer, Thunderbolt, Wasp, Locust, Shadowhawk, and Gripen. They were mechs that would become iconic inside the game. Now, there would be other mechs too, like <clears throat> the Atlas and <laughs> um, the <clears throat> Awesome, suitably named. <laughs> the, my mech is named the Decapitator. <laughs> no, the Discombobulator? Yeah, I like the Discombobulator. <laughs> All right. Anything that begins with D. Yeah, Death, Decay, Decopage. Decopage. Okay. Are you down with the decoupage? I am. <laughs> so yeah, they, they created the, they created this place, and right in there, the first game was called Battle Droids, and right away, Fossus found itself embroiled in illegal brouhaha with, of all people, Lucasfilm. Uh, yeah, they went into it with good intentions, uh, and Lucasfilm wanted to very clearly uh, lay down that uh, droid. That's our stuff. Um, so it, yeah. So and I'm not saying the Battletech people, you know, they they were in no way uh, infringing on anything that you would think of as being Star Wars related. But had Lucas really wanted to hammer down on right. anybody and, like poking their nose, they realized by 1984 that they had really like gotten a franchise off the ground and making a big difference. So. Uh, yeah, so that yeah, they had to settle pretty. It, it ended amicably enough. Yeah, like, All right, well, we'll enough. Yeah, no we'll problem. change the name, and so they change it to Battle Tech because they wanted to expand it. And right away, the the first printing of the rules kind of set this grim, dark essence of the. It is thirty twenty five, and technology has been lost. Once the glorious age of the Star League has now faded, and the means to produce these mighty machines of war called mechs, which he was playing off the whole mecha idea of a lot of this anime imprints, or excuse me, imports, not imprints, jeez, imports that were coming in. So they decided to call the battle of giant robots mechs, 
and you know also include aerospace fighters, tanks, infantry, and other、uh, even artillery. Yeah, they were already doing their homework and thinking up new ways to incorporate like enjoyable vehicle types. Now, of course, I mean to some of us, it seemed like why would you pick anything that is not a battle mech? You know, like you you came here to play battle mechs and then you like I want an airplane. Oh, oh well, I can understand airplanes, but a tank, really? Yeah, yeah. You, you. <laughs>、uh, what's escaping you here?、Uh, apparently, the core concept.、Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That, so, but it was thoughtful of them and a smart choice, I think, to have something on the table for everybody who is. But I would like to do this. Fine, cool. We'll put in a way for you to do that.、Yeah. Good attitude. Not disapproving. Yeah, and they created what was called the inner sphere, where there was endless conflict that had been going on for hundreds of years, with these battle mechs being shot to pieces, and you had one of the few last remaining ones. And it was sort of an age of scarcity. Which I mean, it's really a collection of galaxies, is it not? No, it takes right place here in、uh, good old Milky Way. Oh, okay. The、so、inner sphere、galaxies. is just—it's not really that big in a galactic term, but it—it's what—it's where we are. And、uh, so yeah, that's where we keep our stuff. <laughs> the Earth, that's where I keep my stuff.、Uh, right, and yeah, this so... came out in '84, and so it was already well on its way to starting. And、uh, they ran into another legal snag、uh, just a couple years later. But this one,、uh, this, when they got those original 12 mechs, they did do their diligence and they did contract to see who owned the license of these, and it was called 21st Century Imports. And 21st in. Century Imports was like, yeah, go ahead and use it. There was some fees paid, but for the、yeah. most part, it was very cheap because Japan didn't have a copyright law, so everything was fair use as long as you understood that this was you didn't try to. Yeah, you cannot、it. assume ownership of it、uh, as like the creative,、uh, but you can make use of its terms and know, images、yeah. and likenesses. And they went into this with, I think, were. Truly honorable intentions.、Uh, they did their due diligence. They searched out the appropriate people to contact, and they came to a lawful and what should have been a binding agreement with that entity at that time. Yeah. Now, meanwhile, the BattleTech game would start to take off. It gained popularity. It's a fast-paced game that plays easy, but has a layer of complexity, movement,、uh, range. Types of weapons and loadouts, and also right from the core, you could modify your battle mech. You wanted to put more medium lasers in your battle mech because you like lasers. Well, then you had to pull some stuff out, and if you pulled out a couple weapons to give you that advantage, you had to balance it out because lasers build up a massive amount of heat, and auto cannons and missiles don't. Yeah,、uh, <laughs> you know, you want more lasers, you got to have more heat sink. Yeah, because lasers、okay. don't use any. But the drawback of auto cannons and、uh, Munitions is they have to be carried, they take up space, and they tend to go blow up, and you run out when you least need it. Yeah, they they do, they can be blown up if you happen to be shot right on them. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. There are some downsides to everything. Everything's got it up. Everything's got it down, and you pay for it all. You know, and the idea is to balance out the two opponents, and then see where the battle. And, there, and there's people who just enjoy creating and modifying mechs. That's a whole thing, theory crafting, right out of the box. Oh yeah, Dave. Oh,、right. you know we're looking right at you, Dave. And Scott. Oh yeah, Mr. Bonnie. You know we're we're looking at you, bro. Ah,、oh, because 
I have seen people put some truly awesome thought and time and effort into crafting a novel idea of a mech. You know, they they get、yeah. a core concept that like, okay, this isn't quite covered in the provided materials. What if I tweaked this and withdrew that? And you know, that by the time all that addition and subtraction is done, well. It all ends up at the table, and that's where you find out the you know it's the proving ground, the crucible. Yeah, getting it on the battlefield, putting it out there, and that's the other thing is that it was a beer and pretzels game that you could just play at at any type of level.、Uh, casual, you could just like you know drop in on a game and play, and you would just have as much fun as you would as a person who had a hardcore collection、uh, collector of the game, all of the manuals and the novels. And so let's talk about the novels. Yeah, this is wow. You know, when they were first releasing、uh, the game, they included a novelization because they created a universe with a significant backstory, and it's really hard to prepare a book that is low cost and not too unwieldy, and that delivers the rules of play、uh, while including this. Star-spanning, monumental backstory. So they included a novelization in some of the early kits,、uh, and this, like here, here, have a yeah.、Uh, TSR had released Dragons of Autumn Aut- Twilight, Autumn Twilight, and、uh, it showed that there was some viability in novelization for gaming. So they took off with their own Decision at Thunder Rift in、uh, June of '86. Yeah, the paperback was about four to six bucks back then. You know, this this was a reasonable, you know, like about a five dollar zone for a paperback. Yeah, I think it came in City Tech. That's where I found one. It might have been shoved in there because I bought it secondhand. But、uh, nonetheless, I I heard that a lot of people like when they read this one, and it was really well written, and it was similar to Hammer Slammers. A series by David Drake, which was a mercenary company that used、uh, grab tanks. Now,、uh, that having been said, wow, what a takeoff this made! Okay, I mean, having given the little intro, like they just tried this out once because it was obviously a viable concept, and TSR had proven that this was a thing that you could do. Yeah, and they wanted to put a plot point in here. Boom. <laughs> yep. That you know. Who knew? The, the universe was going in a slow regression backwards with the space with its constant. Yeah, see, this beer will be at our mercy soon. <laughs> and here is a memory core、uh, found and that has all the lost tech that's been disappeared. And of course, Comstar does not want this to get to the great houses, and none of the houses want the other ones to have it. So yeah, you just end up with the ultimate MacGuffin story where everybody's trying to get that thing. Oh yeah, and.、Great. Oh,、huh. what a prize! Yeah, and so this sets the setting up for the next stage. But anyway, this was the setting: is that、uh, what's as this、uh, novelization came out? It was military adventure fiction, and it also developed the characters in ways that you couldn't in the source books. They were also publishing technical readouts that detailed the mechs, their histories, design philosophies that went into them, and even、uh, ace pilots. And then. Uh, they were publishing source books on the various houses,、uh, even you know, Comstar, <clears throat> the phone cops. Have you paid your phone bill lately? No. no. Well, prepare to die. <laughs> oh, the phone police. <laughs> we're the phone police. We don't have to care. <laughs> no. The novelizations took off like wildfire. They had no difficulty with these. Now, I. Un- 
I understand that it's a niche of a niche market. Uh, you would not think that the fandom would be so big as to have supported this so handsomely. But not only did it kind of break out of the sterile confines that we're familiar with in gaming, you know, the, the zone that you're most likely to, uh, of, of uh, players that would be the most likely candidates to read this, they hit the shelves and they drew in new people who then in turn proceeded to go, oh, maybe I'd like to try a game of Battletech. No. <laughs> and that is not how that usually works. works. You know, a niche, it, normally it's the, the players in the niche go out and get the product and that supports the product line. Uh, in this case, the product that was aimed at the niche wound up spreading the product. <laughs> Just uh, So congratulations to Battletech on that. A hundred novelizations plus. Yeah, later. and you know, you can get most of them online now at uh, Catalyst, but... Uh, We'll talk about Catalyst Roll in a, in a little bit here, but we're just going to cover the prehistory a little bit and uh, the legal troubles. And coming into legal troubles, now Battletech was doing really good, and they started to branch into comics, and they started with a in-house publication called Spider and Wolf, which detailed the Wolf Dragoons, which, hey, stick around if you want to know about more. Would you like to know more? Stay uh, tuned. Yeah, so... That came out, and that comic was pretty good, and so they contracted out to Blackthorn Comics who at that time was an indie publisher, and they published uh, several issues, including two annuals and even a 3D mo uh, uh, comic, guys, I understand. I have not seen that, but uh, yes, it still exists. You can find it in the line for pretty cheap from comics. I mean, hmm. older comics is about six, eight bucks. Oh, not bad at all. Right. I'll provide it, of course, as you have some 3D goggles. But uh, yeah, it was 3D. It was also uh, some of the stories were not canonical, although they used a couple of the ace pilots from those technical readouts. They were fun. They were also drew in a lot of people from the comics. And because comics and anime and manga intersected, and this the mecha thing was at its height at this time, this did create a lot of draw for Battletech. And also FASA partnered with Ralph Partha and Ralph Partha began producing these very nice metal miniatures. Oh, very. Uh, now, you know, in their defense, uh, this game has never been as expensive to play as, say, like the armies based type games. You know, like you buy a miniature and, like, you know, you may have a little collection of different types of battle mechs, but you don't really need, you know, like, I need 40 of these so that I can coat the battlefield with. You know, no, it, it's not really. You, you got two friends, you need two minis. Boom. Uh, yeah, and you're... You got six friends, you need one miniature each, 3v3. Boom. Very easy thing to play and break into financially compared to some of the other miniatures-based games. So big win there. But the comic thing, uh, it didn't last as long as one might have hoped. No, and it, and it would move into other areas. But also at this time, they developed into a role-playing game, which was novel, usually... It was the other way around, and now it was the dog wagging the tail in this case. The war game needed a role-playing game, and this also drew in more people because you could do stuff outside of the mech as well as inside. And the war game fit pretty seamlessly Oh yeah, in with this the uh, role-playing game. This was not like two radically different product lines where they're played very differently. No, Mech Warrior just added a dimension to gameplay where when you climbed out of the mech, there were things for your characters to do. There were, you know, uh, machinations and scheming and, uh, you know, longer story arcs 
than were available in, okay, uh, 2v2 combat on the table. Uh, I hate you. You hate me. Let's fight. Yeah. And all of a sudden, that was a total win. Again, MechWarrior wound up being, as opposed to like some failed little side operation, it became a major component of campaign level gaming with Battletech minis. Yeah, and so, you know, the when, universe was full of factions as we talked about. Five great noble houses, House Krita, Steiner, Davian, Merrick, Lau, and the Periphery States, along with Comstar and the various pirate states and free areas. There was and mercenary companies. That was ostentatious that was ostensibly <laughs> ostensibly, excuse me, I got tongue tied. Uh, is what you're starting with is that you know you're playing a hard scrabble mercenary com- company scrabbles the mech warrior <laughs> <laughs> he's just a hard little scruffy guy who just rough decking it through the mean mercenary streets of 3025 okay i, I don't really know about that um so, but anyway yeah scrabbles the mech warrior you know with belong to scrabbles mech warrior company of the discombobulators <laughs> you just took them apart at the seams um <laughs> or team extreme Lazor. yeah we're cheap uh, <laughs> and that's what you would do so it had this very convoluted effect and also with the novels and then the comics uh blackthorn had a nice run but they ran into problems they were later picked up by eclipse and Eclipse tried to carry them through to their next uh, edition, and then they failed. And that was also a time of tumult in the comics, which is a subject of tumult. But Malibu would come in, but also before that time, just as Battletech was starting to reach its height, they decided to branch out and uh, do some new stuff in computer games. Then Crescent's Hawk's uh, Inception and Revenge started to come out. And this uh, was done in a way that supported the mercenary kind of company but uh you could wheel and deal and buy mechs modify them everything you could do in the game but on a computer and at this time computing was starting to catch up a little bit with where they wanted to go but battletech boss especially had another way to go with this <laughs> battle pods that's right yeah this this was the next wave like uh the the next iteration and you gotta hand it to these guys for being some of the very first to take the greatest possible advantage from newly plausible technologies. Uh, Now, obviously, they were not able to accomplish everything that they might have dreamed of at the time, but they pushed the boundary for what could be done with an arcade-style computer game. Uh, As video games were breaking into the, the arcade market on a massive scale and had been for years, these took it to that next yeah almost. they had an idea like, hey maybe we can get into the coin up market there was a there's a potentiality you know piloting a big old stompy mech that would be cool right but they kept thinking bigger and bigger and this project would linger in the background for quite a while and would finally blossom but they would run into some big time legal trouble in 96 but uh we're just going to cover it here. They lost the rights. Finally, it was found out that uh, 21st century imports did not, in fact, have the ability to give permission to use those things. It actually belonged to another company called Harmony Gold, and they were not happy about not having this, so their so-called property used without their permission. And we'll get back to them at the end of this, but uh, the long and short of it is the court settlement said that they had to pull those 12 iconic mechs and this hurt them at a particular time but they would find a way to bounce back and at that we're going to leave you off 
and uh, get back to you in just a moment. We're going to take a quick break. So smoke them if you got them or go grab a drink and get some popcorn and belly up to the bar because we'll be right back. Yep. Picking it up on round two. Yeah, we're back. We took a little break there. Hope you all refreshed. We are, so we're just going to tear right back into it. We were talking about the battle pods. And yeah, this was a thing before networking or even online play. I mean, it was there. Sierra Online and a couple others were around. But then we required arcane sacrifices to gods and the constellations. Yeah, they were they were hard to find. Uh, but here's by pod quite literally this is the thing that you climbed into and closed the door behind you yep you were sealed in so to speak they'd roll it in and then they turn it on and then you were in your mech and you got to get used to it you had a throttle and joystick control you could set your weapons to various triggers and devices you could switch out and the screen represents what you're capable of seeing outside of your mech yep <laughs> so you get the stompy put around and boom boom so you're in the arena, and here's the best part. Uh, you got a few friends with you, and they've got multiple pods. Uh, get a friend in each pod. You're all in the same arena. And this is before the internet had really taken off. This was more like a LAN party, okay? Except that it worked every time, unlike a LAN party, you know? Instead of an hour and a half trying to figure out how to navigate enough... You know, how much Ethernet can I squeeze through this cord to link up with you guys? <laughs> um... No, uh, instead of having to like fire up the hamster wheels and, and make the internets work, these were all hardlined into one another and you all played in the same virtual arena. It was awesome. Oh yeah, blowing parts off your friend's mechs or getting your <gasps> center torso cord by a pair of Gauss rifles going right through your center torso and making you eject and you look down to your exploding microphone. And right. not to speak too lovingly of this, but I never won but I can literally not recall a time that I had more fun losing. Okay, not even speaking in jest. I have never had so much fun. Autocannon 20 goes Got my butt handed to me every time. Well, all right. Look, I acquitted myself well on the field of battle, but I never was the final victor. Not even once, but I loved every single session. So... Thank you, Battletech, once again, for being the bringer of great gamer memories. No, yeah, sure. TSR would break out with uh, Pool of Radiance, Azure Bonds, and Secret of the Silver Blades, and the Dragonlance computer series. But, you know, at the same time, Battletech was right there with uh, Crescent Hawks. Oh, you mean the Baldur's Gate and Neverwinter and all those? Well, yeah, the first one was uh, Pool of Radiance. Ah, yes. Yeah, that was the earliest. Right, and just right... Right, not far uh, behind him was Battletech with Crescent Hawks, Inception, and Revenge, which people just have a lot of fond memories about. And it was quickly adapted to Sierra Online's uh, Battletech being played. But that was the vision that they had. It's where they wanted to take this to the next level. But along this would continue the game line, it would expand, and we'd entered new eras into Battletech. Things would change. The clans appeared, you know, remnants of uh, Kerensky's Exodus from the Inner Sphere, which we're going to talk about the inner spheres history in just a bit. And the legal controversies would start to come up. Uh, 
Basel also began to run into monetary uh, problems in the late 90s, like a lot of companies did with the collectible card game market. But they made alliances. The tops wanted in on the collectible card game market. And they said, you know, Battletech's not a bad horse to back in this one. And Tops had, unlike some of these other companies that had to start or partner with somebody strange, Tops was willing to take the investiture hit if they helped create the content. Now, to give a hand uh, to the people at Tops for this, they had every reason to be confident because, uh, frankly, despite its monetary troubles, FASA and the Battletech concept were kind of proven successes. Yeah. They they had done well and generated a lot. Yeah, they'd been around for 10 years. They During the initial strong. expansion, you know, they were, it was not until this time period that they had been in some form of jeopardy over which they should be concerned. Uh, and obviously their CCG didn't really wind up dominating the, the No, but in, in past effects, and this is just from a lot of the people who collected it, I got to play a game about eight years ago and you know what uh we use the closed deck building system and wow it was kind of fun to build a wolf's dragoon deck and go to town and wreak <laughs> havoc on my opponents yes havoc let's <laughs> uh cry havoc and let's jamie wolf's uh jamie wolf's archer you know his uh battle mech is something to be feared with him piloting it oh Oh, Cry right. havoc and let slip the mechs of war. It's like it's like this guy's really good or something. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that it did not go as well as one might have hoped. But in their defense, once again, they were experiencing the same enormous contraction period that so many gaming companies were at that time period. The the great contraction, uh, and it spelled chaos. Yeah, the CCG didn't work out for them, so they went ahead and. Well, was the one avenue that seemed to be very profitable and promising, which was the video game. And they partnered with <clears throat> Microsoft. But hey, Microsoft got them out there and MechWarrior appeared. And then, you know, soon MechWarrior 2 and then followed not too long after by MechWarrior 3 as graphic cards uh, were literally updating every about what? 18 oh. months. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> if even Doubling, tripling in uh, processing power. Yeah. Every year was a, a new you know design or a new spin and like yeah the benchmark was continually going up so what you could hope to accomplish in the design if you took too long to design a game which for coding purposes you really need to if you want it to work right yeah uh, the amount of time that you were coding meant that by the time your product hits market the graphics cards have already long since outpaced what it was designed to do at the time. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I remember so going from Mech Warrior 2 everybody. to 3 was, oh, like you're barely running. Now, I don't want to be uh, Debbie Downer here, but there was one tragic circumstance here, which, uh, here, <laughs> here's the clap back. Uh, to, to borrow a little thing from uh, uh, the world of Lucasfilm, um, the video games, which they then released for MechWarrior uh, with Microsoft, ended up having one of those moments where, what do you mean? I thought you were going to leave the city alone. I am altering the deal. Pray I do not alter it any further. You know, and... Oh, uh, boy. Yeah, and then Fasa was already on shaky financial ground. Investments had not... Our investors were not flocking immediately to them. 
the novelization was barely hold, keeping them afloat, and they had a lot of works and back publications and people that they owed money to, and it all accumulated as many companies were at the time. They were circling the drain, and they tried desperately to get new cash inflow, and so they decided to just kind of up and call it quits and go for a different type of game, or a collectible game, which was.、Uh, Would end up being、uh, Mage Knight and Hero Clicks, but that's another thing. But hey, they、uh, they moved off. Bossa ended up getting in、uh, his properties ended up almost disappearing if it wasn't for the intervention of a few、uh, investors who、uh, liked the product and saw potential in it, namely Tops and a few others, and they started new companies to keep it going. These were called be called the Dark Days, and BattleTech started、yeah. to become. No new products were coming out. Miniatures,、uh, Ralph Partha was falling on hard times themselves, and they just couldn't keep the status going. And it, it became a problem to keep their heads above water and keep this game going. And well, you know, Fan Pro、uh, and Fast Forward Entertainment kept the license、uh, around, and so you could still get some stuff, but it was hard to find. And new stuff just does not coming out. You know the tragedy is that had this happened like just in our era, you know they would have been able to go to Kickstarter and always be able to fund、oh, new、yeah. products.、Uh, they would not have faced quite the same level of hurdle. And so, you know, a part of me is incredibly thankful that we have the internet support and environment that we do now,、uh, where you know companies that are not very big. Can get the backing they need to launch a product, so that the initial risk, you know, is not so great. They don't have to compromise and say, "Well, we're going to have to do a crappier product than we'd hoped because there's no way we can afford to do the Cadillac like gorgeous thing that we'd love to do." That is less of an issue now than it has ever been.、Uh, the re- the、oh, realism、yeah. that other companies dealt with in that era、uh, was extremely. Uh, it was a, it was an almost hostile environment、uh, for creatives during that little dark age zone, and the the modern you know、uh, internet has really well not just the internet、zone. but the community has come back around and with I think part of the things here that we're talking about we have this nice we have this nice box set now available the BattleTech game of armored combat has come back. Under the new Catalyst imprint, yeah, Catalyst、uh, got on their feet and they had the BattleTech thing, and it was kind of doing okay. But they decided we need to reinvest into this. So here you go, as you open it up, you know, those fine miniatures there. You get a box set now, just like the old one from、uh, I think it was '86 or so that came with twelve、uh, plastic minis. This one, it, the unseen are back again. They got the rights to those, but.、Uh, They got around it by recasting them in new、uh, sculpts, so they don't look exactly like they did. But they're like, here's the little locust. Look at the well,、locust. yeah, and the plastic miniatures, which are used now, the you know,、uh, the composite plastics that we create these days can be modeled in much more effective, durable fashion than they could、uh, when we were kids. You really had to go metal back then,、uh, because plastic—you lost a lot of the precise detail. It wound up being a little fuzzy around the edges everywhere.、Uh, whereas now, 
uh, the the crispness and precision which which they can, you know, mill and model these plastic minis is pretty amazing. Yeah, and it comes with uh, all of the fixings you need to get started, plus a, a pair of dice because every game set's got to have a pair of dice. Eight mech miniatures instead of the original twelve. Hey, it's the economy thing, and the price <laughs> is more than doubled. But you get a little. Uh, is it how many pages is that book there? Oh goodness, uh, just a little novella. Yeah, little mini novella that's uh, only about twenty-four pages in length, uh, with the short story uh, in the beginning of it, and then a glossary of terms and some art to provide people with a glimpse of mech types, uh, as well as like character cards. Dice and of course cardboard punch cutouts and maps that uh, a little map hexagonal tidbits. So yeah, with a fifty-six page rule book that gives you all you need to play. Yeah, not a bad outing by the fine folks at Catalyst. You know, yeah, there's a, a twenty dollar starter set you can get now that just comes with two mechs and the basic rules. But uh, and I'm not ashamed to glow a little bit because in this era, you know, a twenty dollar starter set is a wow man that's a lot of bang for your buck yeah to be able to get in the door at 20 when a lot of the primary textbooks kind of the benchmark for this current time period is a 50 to 60 dollar investment to get a major book and or small box starter set so they thought very carefully and you know found a way to get the foot in the door uh, at a price point that isn't going to knock most people out of the marketplace. So to steal a phrase from The Simpsons, because everything I guess nowadays links back to Simpsons. Don't. <sighs> Battletech's back. What is it hog for? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It's not. <laughs> but Battletech finds itself coming back to a resurgence. A lot of people are tired of the expensive miniature games, and there's not a lot of return for it. And Battletech, as Mike says, they're it's priced where you can get four mechs for $20, 25 bucks in most cases. Um, and you can play a Lance that gives you the ability to play one specific one or split it up among your friends, or uh, you can uh, play the larger game, Alpha Strike, if you want great big battles. Oh, yeah, it's not out of the question. I mean, the, the beauty of it is that if you really like a lot of micromanagement in a very large scale of battle and uh, you have the wherewithal to acquire a large number of miniatures, if you're ready for that, if you feel like that's a thing that you can handle, the possibility is there for that as well. Like mass combat, you know, 20 v 20. Yeah, okay, you can do that too. But you don't have to. This, right. and it, at its core concept, at its inception, Battletech was a game that, you know, a handful of friends could play, and the time consumption and precision was not quite as imposing as with a number of other miniatures-based games. It was very, you know, tight, just boom. You know, here's your phases of operation, and the resolutions are pretty simple and Remember Gator. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful in that respect, uh, and I didn't... I can't recall a single time I showed up for a game of this and like, oh, we're, we're going to need like a two hour setup. Yeah. No. Just boom. 
we hit maps the on the table, the miniatures out, rules of scenario engagement explained. Everybody gets their assignments and objectives are set, and it's go time. And yeah, that's less time than it usually takes to get started in a role playing game. Yeah. <laughs> so hats off. You know, there there are incredibly valid reasons why this game has had the enduring popularity that it has. And even though I was not the you know most diehard fan of all time, even though I was like. I'm, I'm casual, dude. Oh, fine, I'll own it. You know, I showed up like, oh, is that what we're doing this week? You know, and in my long-standing tradition, uh, you know, like, what are we playing? I'm in. Yeah. <laughs> and so I got this new game. I'm in. So Battletech also has given birth to some of the greatest memes on the internet. Uh, the Urban Mech. <laughs> it's a trash can with a cannon. Yes, it may look like a trash can, like Oscar the Grouch resides within... But today is garbage day, and I'm taking out the trash. Die, Clanner, die! And here we go. Let's talk about the Inner Sphere. And Battletech has enjoyed one of the most prolific and detailed settings that's out there, right there with the Forgotten Realms, Glorantha, and even as uh, old as Greyhawk, if you really take the 80s for our advice on this. This has been around for a while. Yeah, we're, we're you know... Into the Wayback Machine, Mr. Peabody. Uh, Let's go back and investigate the origins of the Battletech universe. What are the seven great eras? Yes, there's. we talked about Star League, the Succession Wars, the Clan Invasions, and then the Civil War, Jihad, Dark Age, and the Il Khan or Twilight of the Clans, which is supposedly the present time now. But the Battletech universe has been a vibrant and living creative universe that has used more than just source books and rules, it's used the novels to tell its story. Characters like Alexander Kerensky, Jamie Wolfe, uh, Hans Davian, Takashi Kurita, and his son Theodore Kurita, and the House Lao and its Machiavellian politics inside of it. Each one of the houses has a separate personality, and as we talked about, the multiple factions with Comstar all kind of wringing their hands, yes, yes, destroy each other, inner sphere great houses, we will soon be ruling you. <laughs> the clans showed back up, you know, and then like, what are the clans? And then, you know, okay, so let's talk a little bit about that. The Battletech universe has been going on for a while, and they decided right from the beginning that Star League was like the Traveler, it was like the Imperium. It was a dawning of a new age where for once, all the various factions were unified under one titular head, Star League, with Ian Cameron, the ruler of the Terran Hegemony, at its titular head. And now, with its Star League's military, could revive with the Battletech. The original battle mech was called the Mackie, and it was revolutionary. It changed the way war was fought. No longer did you have to have large companies. One battle mech carried the entire power of an entire company of tanks. And supported by just one pilot, why it could do a lot. And four of them were a formidable force of mobility, firepower, and durability. Now, um, soon, new this new invention would revolutionize warfare in the twenty or the thirtieth century, the tw late twentieth century, twenty eighth centuries. Pardon me, and it would change things. And one of the things they made right away was to get rid of warships. Because what do a lot of science fiction games feature? Great big hulking warships. Great big hulking warships. Right. They're big honking warships. They're just flying around, blowing each other up. They decided that, hey, we're going to get rid of those. 
And with the fall of Star League, Star League, the golden moment where, you know, humanity was at once at peace with itself. There was this interstellar military that not only held to peace, but upheld the beliefs of the people and the rights of them. They were betrayed within by Aramis the Betrayer, who killed <laughs> the last member of the House of Cameron. And Star League collapsed in a bloody gory mess with the last protector, Alexander Krensky, leaving in an exodus that took 80% of Star League's forces to parts unknown. What would happen to them? Well, nobody really cared because the inner sphere, the five great houses immediately started infighting over the scraps left and blazing things by orbit with nukes. Yeah, as soon as like the, the boot was off the neck, you know, like the minute everybody had the opportunity to scramble for personal gain, uh, they all proceeded to do so, resulting chiefly in the destruction of almost all of the resources and industry necessary to sustain international or i mean interplanetary and interstellar travel uh, so you're you're looking at like that one of those total collapses that comes very very close to leaving everybody just stranded back on the planets they started on like okay so like space travel is not a thing anymore it's like just a window where civilization almost contracted back to that pre-interstellar thing and that's where they pulled up the brakes short and went, okay, okay, okay. Whew. All right, I totally get that we do not like each other, but if we don't curb this just a little, there ain't gonna be anything left to fight over. Yes, instead of massive invasions of systems, now it was just single planet raids or objectives to get a few pieces of tech and retreat back to your house. Borders. Inflict a little harm, get away and that's your goal. Yeah, that's the starting point where you start play in 3025. And with Comstar maintaining the hyperpulse generators, the only way of instantaneous communication or nearly so across the inner sphere, Comstar held a lot of clout and acted as the intermediary between the great houses. But, you know, a lot of things would start to change and there was political upheavals, drama, uh, marriages, deaths, uh, falls of houses, and a new player entered in character that I like to call the Wolf Dragoons is a wild card that showed up with warships or one big warship. Like, where did you get that? We found it. Where? Uh, <laughs> we don't, there. We don't want to talk about it. <laughs> but one of their back warrior pilots would be called Natasha Kerensky. This is one of the things I think Battletech does really well. She's kind of started out as this kind of mech bunny, you know, this uh, poster girl, pinup art. And then a weird thing happened. Fans really clicked with her. And they made her into a not only a novel character, uh, but like an incredibly nuanced and thoughtfully rendered character. But a person of like you know uh, earnestness and ambition, uh, you know who you know they they endured many trials and you know, like fought off countless betrayals and you know moments of terrible disadvantage. You know, like they they rose and or they waned and waxed on the the tides of fortune. Uh, but survived and it became an almost a beloved archetype huh. and she was allowed to age not only just in the literature but in the art and you know there's the meme that says oh yeah Natasha Kurinsky flaming hot at 84 as her mech's on fire where she dies <laughs> yeah yeah okay but yes she was allowed to age in the art and also everybody noticed it I mean it was really she's got the name Kurinsky Alexander Dubrinsky. Is that just pretentiousness on her part? Mm -hmm. And they found out with the clans. 
that the when the clans returned, they returned and they were the announced themselves with the heirs of Kerensky, and then everybody, oh, she really was an heir of Kerensky. Yes, they came back. A eugenics program engineered to make the best warriors that could be produced by technology and society. They came to reclaim the inner sphere and establish Star League under their auspices. And they had advanced warfare and machines that had not seen a regression. Well, and in a recurring theme uh, throughout a great many uh, products of science fiction, uh, you also see the, you know, a kind of intentional debunking of the, you know, Ubermensch narrative. Yeah. Where, like, we have built the ultimate perfect soldiers who cannot possibly be stopped and then they are yeah because then comstar <laughs> turns to be out or a faction of them turns out to be the heroes by like uh we've been hoarding a few resources that the clans seem to be unstoppable but we're gonna try something here we just need some help from you guys well we've almost all the houses are like we've exhausted almost all our armies fighting these guys and nothing seems to stop them well we have some resources in reserve you do <laughs> how many Couple million. <laughs> what? <laughs> we can barely get a hundred thousand together. Uh, we've been sitting on these things for a while, uh, but yeah, we're going to use we're, them. We're going to have to send in a team to blow the dust off them, but I mean, yeah. they're pretty much ready to go. So, yeah, uh. <laughs> the Battle of Two Kid, and you know, this narration of just mechs blowing each other up turns out to be one of the better things that happen. And writers like Mike Stackpole, who you might recognize from some of the Star Wars stuff. You know, he was one of the main authors of this. And this was something they set up back in 84 when they first started. Like, hey, you know, what's going to happen with Star League when they leave? Well, they're going to come back. Now they didn't know they were going to call them the clans and all that. But this is the part of the lore. And the seven eras that you can play in. Hey, uh, a lot of people say, I don't like the new stuff. You know what? That's fine. In your head, Kanan, you can go back to the 3025. Or you can play in the clan invasion. Or you can play in the Jihad. Yeah, this is effectively open source at that point. You know, they, they published this material with the intention of people playing in multiple eras. Uh, not being entirely enthused about one particular era does not in any way diminish the rest of the game. Which, gosh, if only Forgotten Realms back in 2nd edition had pulled a move like that. Like, oh, here's a supplement book that you can use to alter the campaign. But all the other material will be universal and can still use the original campaign material. No, they did not do that. Like, you're going to have gunpowder and wild magic and dead gods all over the place, or you won't play. Like, well, then I'm not going to play. Yeah, all right. Guess what? I'm not buying. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> that's how that crap works, motherfucker. Yeah, I know. That was weird. Uh, but they, they also had some retcons. They had a, a cartoon series. But Battletech got a lot of stuff right. Yeah, and they had a cartoon series that kind of used the clan invasion as a backdrop. It was written by uh, Larry Dottilio and some of the Battletech alumni, like Stackpole and others. And, hey, it was pretty good. It went on for, what, about, I think, about just 12 episodes or so before it was off the air. But they created some toys to go along with it, because back in the 90s, you couldn't have a cartoon series without toys. What so, you, you know, you were able to get the uh, uh, Adam Steiner's uh, Axeman and... Uh, a bushwhacker, a media mech, and a couple others, like a hunch, clan hunchback 2C. i sure I got one of those bushwhackers in the garage. Oh, yeah. No, I'm kidding. Well, it does about the same thing with its uh, <laughs> LBX-10. But <laughs> cut down the greenery, daisy cutters. And there you have uh, one of the characters that was the clansman called Nikolai Malthus, who ends up suing 
Steiner Broadcasting Corporation for defamation of character. And he almost won if he didn't challenge the judge to trial by combat. <laughs> I declare this a match-all. I find you in contempt of the court. Damn it. Aww. But they took all of the embarrassing stuff and they didn't retcon it. They just said, ah, what's a divergence thing? It, it still exists in the universe. Use it if you want. But most people take it as a joke. And that's how you do it. And just like with all the things like, hey, if you don't like the new stuff and you just like to play in the classic area, which a lot of people do. They didn't invalidate it. Yeah. They didn't say like, well, we're not going to produce mechs for those old eras. Yeah, they are. They're just all upgraded. Yeah. So, you know, Battletech is a deep, in-depth universe that deserves more attention than, and love than it gets because, you know, urban mech. Uh, the mech, the 30-ton mech that fights like a 100-ton mech. It's got the heart of an atlas, but the body of a little tiny neck. <laughs> just did them. And it's crappy, and it's slow, and it's... Un okay, okay. So, yeah. <laughs> um, if you've ever been put into an urban mech, you'll know. Moves like a cow, fights like a lion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, you know, the legal battles that came out of this, Harmony Gold ended up getting uh, slapped down finally in 2000, uh, I think it was eight. Yeah, for wild overreach. Yeah, yeah, and Microsoft even got involved in the landmark case of IP uh, identity properties, like how long can you own something forever? And this involved MechWarrior and several other things. And it's like, if we worked on it and our code was used in it, then we get to own it. And an important development for the rest of internet and gaming overall, uh, and for a lot of creatives around the globe, uh, was the harsh smackdown uh no uh, just because you were employed in the creating of it does not mean that you suddenly own the creative material as well as your code uh so tough break no uh all's well that ends well we still have battletech out there and people still love it man yep, i feel like it's a giant win-win it is and we're proud to bring this episode to you so we're gonna wrap it up there until next time may, may the, the dice, dice always roll, roll in, in your, your favor. favor we're out see ya <laughs>